On Wellbeing Today, I have two guests, each a specialist in his own field. The first is Dr. Alan James, a cardiologist, and the second is urologist Dr. Martin White. Dr. James, I'd like to start with you by finding out not so much the causes of heart problems, but how a patient is treated once the problem has been found. So perhaps we can take the case of a patient who's had a heart attack and you've decided they need to have surgery. What's the criterion for such a decision? Just one point, I'm actually a cardiac surgeon rather than a cardiologist. There is quite a distinction in this day and age. Mm -hmm. But basically what would happen with a person who's had a heart attack is they would initially be medically managed while in hospital and then if 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 their risk factors are... Um, significant and their um, presentation warrants an angiogram, they would then have an angiogram, which is an investigation of the arteries around the heart. And if there is significant disease on the angiogram, well, then we have to work out what to do with the patient from there. In general, there's, most people have three coronary arteries, and if, if the patient has significant blockages in all three coronary arteries or blockage in the main coronary artery, the left main coronary artery, they would be offered surgery, whereas if there's single vessel disease or double vessel disease, which is not critical, um, stenting would stenting would usually be offered. There's obviously quite a difference in the way that the patient progresses from there with a stent. Um, it, that's done via um, a small puncture in the groin, and the recovery is quite rapid. Whereas with surgery, which is what I practice, um, it usually means approximately a week in hospital, and um, you know the full operation to. Um, bypass graft each of the arteries concerned. Okay, well take it step by step. Sure. How soon after a patient has had an angiogram do you decide to operate? Or would you like to operate? Well, there's a whole spectrum of uh, decision making and it depends on the clinical status of the patient. If the patient's having a major heart attack and um, has um, um, heart failure or cardiogenic shock, sometimes we take them directly from the angiogram lab directly into the theatre and Um, do uh, bypass surgery in an effort to save their life uh, versus occasionally people will be done over the next few days because of unstable angina or critical disease to patients who may come through our rooms and be reviewed on a non-urgent basis and then be offered surgery um, at a timed interval from there. Now, if bypass is to be done, is it correct that you use the veins from other parts of the body and if so, where do they come from? Um, in general, these days, most of the time, we would, we would use one or two mammary arteries which run behind each side of the breastbone. And then we, we have a range of other uh, pipes available to us, including vein from the leg, um, arteries from the arms, and sometimes even an artery from part of the gut to uh, use as bypass grafts. Does this make any difference to the flow of blood through those particular parts of the body if you take the veins out? No, um, God's made it, particularly in the legs for example, God has made it that um, there's two systems of veins, there's the deep and the superficial veins and we just take one of the veins so the other veins um, grow larger over time and take over flow from that part of the body. The mammary arteries from behind the breastbones, we think that they were placed there for us because uh, they have excellent flow and the rest of the body takes over the flow of blood to that area. Sounds like something's on your side anyway. (laughs) Will you tell me how, while you're actually operating on the heart, the blood flow is maintained to the brain and the rest of the body? Well, there's two ways of doing bypass surgery, and certainly over the past few years, a lot more what we call off-pump surgery is being performed. Um, Basically, uh, the standard operation was using the heart-lung machine, so the heart is 
the heart is um, not required for circulation, but the blood needs to be drained from the body into the pump, and then the pump oxygenates the blood and then pumps the blood back into the body so the heart doesn't have to beat when you're operating on it. These days, a lot of the surgery is performed off-pump, which means we don't use the heart-lung machine, but we stabilise the heart with special retractors, and we operate with the heart beating, and we place the bypass grafts with the heart beating. Sounds quite fascinating. Well, it's been a big change in direction, but, yeah. but certainly in high-risk patients, probably that, that is um, the state of the art these days. Because I can remember, and I'm sure that most of the listeners do, um, years ago, the, the big antiquated machinery that was used to um, oxygenate the blood once the, the patient's heart was stopped. Sure. It used to take up a lot of the uh, theatre. Your well, way must make a lot of difference. Well, since 1953, you, you know, there's been great changes in, in the specialty, but um, uh, the, you know, the, the current trend is towards doing probably more not using the heart-lung machine. Um, as our patients become older and sicker, probably it, it makes that type of surgery less risky. Now, you've got the patient on the table, you're yes. ready to go. Do you actually divide the sternum or do you just move some of the ribs back? Oh, no. Um, you know, the great majority of our heart operations are done through a sternotomy and that is dividing the sternum with a kind of modified jigsaw, I suppose. And then um, that gives us the best access to all areas of the heart. Um, some people would do minimally invasive operations either through partial sternotomy, which, which means only... Um, uh, dividing part of the breastbone, or even through mini thoracotomies, which means small incisions on either side of the sternum. But as yet, those those technologies are still being sorted, and um, where you don't have as much access, sometimes the surgery can be more difficult and um, take longer. So probably the great majority of the operations still occur through the front through a, a standard sternotomy. And does this take long to heal in its own right? Well, most people would spend about a week in hot edger and pain is not a major issue because the sternum is uh, rewired at the end of the case and it's kind of, it's a bit like a fracture within a cast. Mm. Um, so there's, you know, there's general soreness, but it's not out and out um, uh, pain for most people. But usually I would let my patients uh, drive a car after a month and uh, state them that they can't do any heavy lifting or bending for around six weeks. The wearing a seat belt wouldn't be uncomfortable? Um, people find it a little bit, they have oftentimes some kind of funny sensations on the front of their breastbone, some you know, tingling or numbness or burny type feelings, and sometimes the seatbelt can rub that up. But in general, I say to people they should wear a seatbelt because the risks of wearing a seatbelt, um, of not wearing a seatbelt, obviously are higher for them. Mm. Now, when you, you're using the veins to repair the whatever's damaged within the heart, Yes. Um, how do you actually attach those veins? Are they sewn into place? Or? They're, they're sewn into place. Um, there is some new technology coming through now where there's little clipper clips which, uh, which actually attach the vein grafts to the various arteries. But in general, we would sew them into place using telescopic loops. So we wear um, special uh, glasses which magnify the area um, three times um, normal. And then we sew them into place with sutures about the little bit thicker than a human hair. And um, that's, I suppose, all practice. And I guess you have to have very deft fingers, don't you? Well, um, you have to watch your hands in this, in this uh, mm. profession. Mm. Tell me, how long does the average operation take? Well, I suppose it depends what we're doing. If we're doing a single graft not using the heart-lung machine, that operation may take an hour to an hour and a quarter. Uh, whereas if we're doing a valve replacement with several bypass grafts, that might take 
three to three and a half hours all up, and that's the actual operating time. It takes the anaesthetist probably an hour to get the patient off to sleep and get all the special monitoring lines and tubes placed, and then about half an hour for transfer. So a two and a half hour operation becomes four hours in the theatre. Mm. Once the operation is finished, how is the wound closed? Is it done with, with sutures or... I understand there's a new type of light glue that's often sure. used these days. There's um, various methods of closure, and the usual method would be a stitch underneath the skin called a subcuticular stitch, which is a resorbable suture, so that no sutures need to be removed. Oftentimes, patients have fairly thin skin, which is fairly brittle, and then in that circumstance, we may use little skin clips, which need to be removed at around day seven. And some, some uh, surgeons are using, particularly for smaller incision work, um, a, um, a special glue which actually opposes the edges, um, similar to you know, similar to any epoxy glue. You're listening to Wellbeing, and I'm talking to the first of my de- guests today, Dr. Alan James. Dr. James, surgery is finished, and the patient it goes into intensive care from the theatre. What's the average stay there? Uh, the average stay these days is around uh, 24 to 36 hours for standard cases. And uh, throughout that time, the patient would come off the breathing machine and have the tube out of their trachea. And then the great majority of patients that we see the following day um, are sitting out of bed and uh, having a bit of breakfast. And then we'll oftentimes move to a, a, to a high dependency level ward or, um, or such um, on, the, on the first day post-operatively. Well, my next question was going to be uh, how soon after surgery does the patient get is, is encouraged to get out of bed, but I guess you've answered that. Does it always sort of occur as quickly as that after surgery? Well, a lot of it depends on how fit and uh, how fit the patient was initially, and you know whether or not they were presented to us, um, you know, from the cath lab unwell, or whether or not they've come in as a routine admission. Sometimes people may need to spend several days in the intensive care unit, depending on how their heart and lungs and, and uh, kidneys are working. But, um, you know, the majority of patients these days, particularly of routine cases, would progress along those lines. And the average stay in hospital is about a week? The, the average stay depends on the unit and the surgeon preference and the patients. And certainly in Newcastle, a lot of our patients come from regional areas and where, you know, we don't rush to send them home. But I would say that the majority of patients would spend six to seven days in hospital. Younger patients, like people in their 40s, may well only may well only spend four or five days in hospital, and then obviously older patients with less less social support may well spend longer. And will you see the patient every day while he's there? That's that's part of the deal. As a cardiac surgeon, your responsibility is to see your patients every day that you've operated on, and that that would be standard practice. And how long after they've gone home do they come back and see you again? They- uh, they usually would see the surgeon at around two weeks post-discharge and then see the referring cardiologist, the medical doctor, at around six weeks post-operatively. And in general, people, surgeons usually would hand the patient back to the cardiologist and the local doctor um, after that time. And they usually come and see you in your rooms? Correct. And is there any other information that you would like to give me regarding the procedure that you know, sort of come up in your um, questions frequently asked? Well, I think these days, um, uh, you know, we, we do a lot more valve surgery than probably we did in the past as, as um, stenting has taken over uh, some degree of the, of the uh, coronary bypass work. Um, the valve surgery that we do a lot, of the, a lot of times these days is actually a valve repair rather than replacement. Um, plus there's also a lot of other type of work in general that we do, such as 
pacemakers and defibrillators, which kind of rounds out our practice. Are pacemakers still generally used? Oh, um, well, pacemakers are common in society in general, and both surgeons and cardiologists implant pacemakers. Um, after heart surgery, after valve surgery, uh, implantation of a pacemaker is a not uncommon event. Uh, after bypass surgery, that would be fairly rare. They actually control the the measured beat of the heart, don't they? Keep That's it right. on a measured beat. Basically, the pacemakers, if your heart forgets to beat um, above a rate of 60, the pacemaker will then recognise that and then send a small pulse of electricity down the lead and make sure that the heart um, um, keeps in a normal rhythm. And depending on the number of leads of the pacemaker that are placed in the different chambers of the heart can regulate basically a normal rhythm. I must admit I'm always uh, very interested to hear about pacemakers my brother in England was um, instrumental in helping to assemble the very first one yes. way back in, in oh, I forget how long. Probably the mid-50s. Yeah, that would be about right. Yes. So I've sort of followed the with interest the uh, heart pacemaker from those early days right through to the ones that are used now. Yes. I understand that you're uh, going to be available to talk to the public about the work you do at the Lake Macquarie Private Hospital this coming Saturday. That's right. Um, on Saturday the 16th um, at Lake Macquarie Private there's an open fair and uh, there'll be many booths from representing all the various specialties and services of the hospital but um, most, most specialists in the various disciplines will be uh, present and we want to show the public how to, you know, what we do and demystify it to some degree. Um, for example, for the cardiac surgery booth where we'll have a heart-lung machine there so that people can see how a heart-lung machine works and what the various components of it are and one of the perfusionists who runs the heart-lung machine will be available to answer questions. We'll have a display of pacemakers and defibrillators and also some information regarding heart valves and some, of those, and some information also about off-pump surgery so that the public can see what we do and uh, ask questions and you know, get some information. Do you think that this way you will sort of take out the basic fear of, of cardiac surgery? Sure. Um, I, I suppose that's not, in the end, that's not the aim of the day, but certainly I think that'd be a beneficial uh, byproduct of it. Um, we we recognise that people are worried about major surgery and we understand you know, that that is the case. But we make every effort in general to speak to patients and can, um, inform them of the pros and cons and... A lot of the work is actually keeping up with the families involved as well and, um, you know, uh, making sure that they understand what's happening with their, with their loved one and uh, that's an important part of the job. I was just thinking as you were, were talking there that the families are often sort of not really neglected but put to one side, if you like, when the, the patient is under care. But I guess that their help and, and their understanding is equally as important. Oh, look, I think all of us recognise that and all of us make a big effort um, to spend time with the patient and the family beforehand discussing the pros and cons of any procedure. And after all, after the surgery, um, initially it's the family that you speak to about the surgery and that's, uh, that's a really important component of our work. Dr James, thank you so much for giving me your time and talking to me today. Perhaps maybe in the future we can catch up and talk a little more about cardiology and cardiac surgery in general. But in the meantime, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. My second guest today is Dr. Martin White. Dr. White is a urologist and we're talking today about prostate cancer. 
Dr. White, thank you for being with me and giving me your time. Iris, thanks for having me on the show. There's just a few questions I'd, I'd like to ask you, and the first one is, how common is prostate cancer? Well, prostate cancer is, is very common. It's, it's currently the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst men. It's recently overtaken lung cancer in that, um, uh, in that role. Uh, we diagnose about 10,000 new cases uh, per year in Australia, and there are about 1,500 deaths from prostate cancer per year in Australia. So it's a, it's a common disease and needs to be looked at more closely. And which men should be checked for cancer? Sure. Well, we, we have a, um, a policy of, uh, from the Urological Society of Australasia which um, states that, that men between the ages of 50 and 70 who are otherwise in good health uh, should have an annual check uh, for their prostate gland and that's done by way of a blood test and by way of an examination of the, uh, of the prostate gland. We also recommend that any men over 40 years old who have got a family history of prostate cancer should also get checked. That is men who have got either a father or a brother who have um, suffered from prostate cancer. Can you tell me a little more about how the men are actually checked? You mentioned a, a blood test. Yes, sure. Um, it's the, the check is a very simple one to have done. It's a blood test that is called a PSA test. That stands for prostate-specific antigen. That means that the blood test is specific for the prostate gland, not necessarily specific for cancer, but a certain proportion of men who have that blood test that is raised up will have prostate cancer. So if that blood test is done and is abnormal, then about one-third of those men who have an abnormal blood test will have prostate cancer. That is also augmented by a, a digital examination of the prostate gland, and if there is any abnormalities there, then that increases those percentages accordingly. So it's, it's a test that's done on men on a yearly basis to make sure there's no problems. What does a, a prostate biopsy involve? Sure. So if the blood test, the PSA, is abnormal or, or the examination of the prostate is abnormal, then most times men would be referred to a urological specialist and a biopsy, um, if appropriate, would be recommended. Now, the biopsy uh, is done with an ultrasound probe that is uh, passed into the rectum and that uh, transmits an ultrasound um, uh, to the prostate gland and gives a picture of the prostate gland, not only the surface but what's going on deep inside the prostate. And in conjunction with that, we can pass pass a very fine needle along adjacent to the probe and take some biopsies from the prostate gland uh, to get looked at under the microscope to see what's going on. Tell me exactly what does the prostate gland do? Well, the prostate gland, when you're a younger man, uh, produces uh, some of the fluid that is used in the ejaculation and a nutrient for the semen. As you, uh, as you get older, of course, it causes nothing but obstruction and can also have cancerous change. So once you get past your reproductive years, the uh, function from the prostate gland drops off and, as I say, starts to cause problems of its own accord. If this becomes enlarged and not necessarily with cancer, does that interfere with the urine flow? Yes, quite. So, so men who are having symptoms from their prostate gland, meaning obstructive symptoms, uh, poor stream, uh, having to wait to get started, urinary frequency, getting up at night and some degree of urinary urgency, are usually related to the obstructive element of the prostate gland. It is rarely that prostate cancer will cause symptoms and usually we are trying to diagnose prostate cancer before it causes symptoms. So some men worry that I've got these symptoms and is it prostate cancer, but usually those symptoms are related to obstruction and may need to be addressed of their own accord. So uh, simply because they do have an obstruction and, and an interruption to their flow doesn't necessarily mean it's cancer? No, not at all. And men should take, you know, take heart in that to a degree and, and those symptoms do need to be assessed, but they certainly don't, don't point towards prostate cancer necessarily. But 
the two things can occur simultaneously, so they, they do need to be assessed. Once you've decided that or discovered that the patient has cancer, what treatments are available to him? Sure. So that, that's obviously a very big topic and that must be tailor-made to the individual patient, not only the extent of the tumour uh, but also the aggressiveness factor of that tumour, taking into account the patient's age and their general uh, medical uh, problems and well-being. Um, but generally, if active treatment is uh, recommended, then that is usually by way of either radical surgery, which is surgical removal of the prostate gland, or radical radiotherapy, which is radiotherapy designed at, with curative intent. If the prostate has been um, completely removed, it's, are they sort of missing out on anything particularly? Does it alter <laughs> their, their way of life very much? Well, sure. If the prostate gland is removed, then there are a couple of things that, ca that can occur from that operation, and it's a big operation and not undertaken lightly. It's, it's, it's a cancer operation, and I guess that should be uh, kept you know, to, the, to the front, at least that you want to have that done and you want to have the best cancer operation that you can have. Now, there are side effects of any types of treatment, and from that particular operation, uh, control of the water continence can be affected in a small percentage of men, and also because the nerves that supply the erections uh, uh, to the penis run just, just posterior to the, uh, to the gland, they can be affected as well, so the erections can be interrupted. Does it mean the death knell for sexual intercourse? Uh, well, it can do. If the erections are, are interrupted, then that, then that can be the case. But certainly there are ways of trying to preserve those nerves. And then also, if there is any function left over, that can be augmented with, sub, with um, uh, medications such as Viagra uh, and also injection therapy as well. So it, it not necessarily the end of everything? Not necessarily the end of uh, enjoyment of life, no. Dr White, the... The number of men who die with cancer, and I understand that it can be um, a very slow developing cancer in a lot of men. The number of people, or number of men dying with cancer, prostate cancer, is that greater than the number of, of men who die from it? No, it's still, it's still a truism that more men die with prostate cancer than die of prostate cancer. And, and to a degree, prostate cancer becomes increasingly common the older that you get. Now, prostate cancer plays itself out over a 5, 10 or 15 year time, uh, time frame. And clearly, the earlier you develop prostate cancer, then the more years you have for that to cause you some problems. So there are a number of men who perhaps are in their mid-70s or older who, even though they may have prostate cancer, it may not impinge upon their life expectancy. Uh, and what we're really aiming to do with this um, uh, screening, if you like, or this testing of men is to pick up significant cancers in younger men and cancers that would, in fact, you know, impinge upon their life expectancy and dealing with those earlier rather than later. If the fella has prostate cancer and it's, he's likely to die with it, is one of the treatment you give him to keep it in check hormone therapy replace, uh, hormone replacement therapy? Sure. So what, what we're really doing there is after people have failed radical treatment, radical treatment is, is treatment based at, uh, with curative intent, and if they fail that or if the cancer recurs despite the best efforts of radical treatment, then there are other second-line treatments that can be brought, in, brought into play, and one of those is hormonal manipulation. That uh, is based on the fact that the uh, cancer grows under the influence of the male hormone testosterone and by decreasing the testosterone levels in the blood, not necessarily hormone replacement, but actually decreasing the levels of uh, the testosterone in the blood, then that will effectively starve the cancer of its nutrients, if you like, and put the cancer into, into remission for some years. Dr. White, thank you so much for talking to me and giving us your time.
Okay. Thank you very much, Ira. Thank you. On behalf of all the team, I would like to say thank you for listening and stay well.